Well, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Fantastic. Hey, uh, just real quick, you know, here at Redemption Church, there's only a few things that we're really passionate about or excited about. Uh, one of those things is that we are very passionate about Jesus being worshipped in profound ways by his people. We're very excited about that. We're very passionate about that because we believe Jesus is worthy of our praise. And so that's one thing we're really, really uh, concerning ourselves with. Another one is this book right here. We believe that this book should be known and loved in, in precious ways by God's people. And so we're very excited about this book. And then the third thing we're excited about is the fact that there are those who are yet to know what it means to worship Jesus and understand his book like we do. We want those people to know Jesus. We want those people to be shaped and touched by his life, by his grace, by his love. Right? That's our mission as a church, and we do that in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's local, what we do as his church in this community, and sometimes it's in other places where we encourage people to share the gospel overseas, to plant churches, and to bring the good news into the lives of people that are yet to be again touched by the grace that we know. And uh, to get behind that, we support church planters in different parts of our world, and about every quarter... Uh, we highlight a different church planter that we want you to know about. And so if you, after our gathering this morning, uh, if you go out into the commons, there's a table set up out there, and you can learn all about Amos and Heidi Collins. They are church planters in Micronesia. Uh, his day job, very cool, thank you for the whoop. That's right, they're awesome. And uh, his day job is flying a plane, but really his mission is planting churches and supporting churches and pastors and leadership and churches throughout Micronesia. And so, man, I would love for you to stop by that table afterward to find out more about them. Maybe some of you will even be so inclined as to get their email, drop them a line and just say, you know what, I'm praying for you. I don't even know you, but I'm praying for you. Maybe you know them and haven't touched base for a while and you just want to let them know, hey, my heart is there with you. Thank you for the uh, decision that you've made. Uh, You're calling to obedience to go and bring the good news to people that haven't heard, that kind of thing. So, man, I would love for you to do that. So think about that after our gathering this morning out in the commons. Stop by the table. Find out about Amos and Heidi, a beautiful young family, uh, just great people all the way around. Love them to death, and I know they would be massively encouraged uh, just knowing that you're praying for them, that you're uh, interested in what they're doing, and uh, again, maybe drop them a line and just say, hey, we we are definitely thinking about you and want you to know that uh, we appreciate what you do. So I'm going to pray for the Collins family as well as pray for our time this morning as we get into the Word, and so let's go ahead and do it together. Jesus, I thank you again for uh, your love and grace, and I thank you for how you lay things on the hearts of people to go and do something uncomfortable, right? That you call us to this thing, which is to go and bring the good news to the nations. And so I pray just as we want to be effective in our community to bring the good news here, I pray for those who are overseas and in other places bringing the good news there that, you know what, they are encouraged by you, that they are motivated by a joy in you. We know that they face trials of various kinds, even as we've been learning in Peter. But I pray that Those trials are received by them with joy, knowing that they are called to an eternal hope. And so we pray for Amos and Heidi and the family that they are deeply encouraged by you, that they are um, sensing your grace and power in a daily way. And and I pray that as a church, uh, we will always be behind all of our church planters in that prayerful, urgent way that says, you know what, the world desperately needs you, and may we feel the burden of that. And so we bring them to you, we bring us as a church to you, asking that you would not only inspire us, but truly bring just an urgency and an anxiousness of what it means to communicate you to a world that desperately needs you and is estranged from you and is staring down the corridor of hell apart from you. I pray for that urgency for us. And so we ask that in your good and powerful name. Amen. Awesome. Well, if you have a Bible app or a Bible Bible, I want to invite you right now to open up to the book of First 
Peter chapter 1. So swipe to 1 Peter chapter 1, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we are more than happy to give you one. We want people to have God's Word. So if you stop at our information table after uh, our gathering this morning, you can pick that up and it's yours to keep. We just, again, we love God's Word. We want people to know God's Word because, as I shared earlier, we are excited as a church about God's Word. And it's going to come out this morning at the end of our text why we're so excited about it. Because um, this book is more than just another book. It offers more than just some augmented advice for life. This book is life. This book is power. This book is things that God has given to us for our good. And, And Peter wants to really anchor that as he's writing his particular letter. Now, as a church, we started something in January that we are calling Smash Bible. And um, yes, thank you again. I, there's a woohoo over here that I'm digging. Meet me afterwards. I want to give you an award. All right, so, um, but, but, but Smash Bible has been a, a, a really fascinating thing. I, I'm, I'm going to relabel in my life. I'm going to call it Crack Bible because I'm addicted to it now. Um, yeah, you're like, that doesn't sound right. Um, yeah, but I am, man. I, you know, I'm just, you know, every free chance I have, I'm, I'm just doing it because I just, I'm enjoying it so much. So I, I, I've sort of gotten ahead, but I'm, I'm getting ahead not because I'm some kind of bizarre completionist that wants to have the rest of the year off. Um, I, I'm just loving it. And one of the things that I love about it is the fact that what this ends up doing is it forces us to ask questions of the text, right? So you read it and instantly you're like, is that yellow? Is that green? Is that, is that a promise? Is that a command? Is that something I should emulate or something I should avoid? Is that a sin to confess? Or is this, does it even fit any of the colors? All right, grab purple. I don't know. You know, like, like there's this thing where it imposes on us to think a little harder than typically when we do a read-through and we read three chapters and then afterwards we close our Bible and go, I don't know what I read, but at least I read something. All right? Um, this is a great way to slow down. And, and I say that because of Peter's opening word in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. It is a word that forces us to ask a question. And it is an opening word that's very simple. In verse 13, he starts by saying, therefore. Therefore. And so anytime you see something like that, you want to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, Right? It begs the question. He said something up to this point, and so he's saying, based on what I've said, based on what I've encouraged, based on how I've inspired, therefore, I want you to do this. So it gives a motivator to to this next opening volley that he has for this. And and if we recycle chapter 1 up to this point, uh, man, we understand what the therefore is there for. He writes to a group of people that are dispersed, that are exiled, that feel like outsiders because they're now God's insiders, right? So uh, they're, they're, they're feeling the weight of that. They're feeling the various trials that come with a life in Christ, that come with the uh, realities that when you start to live more like Jesus, the more you inadvertently, even if you don't mean to, you start to act as light in dark places, and the, and the darkness doesn't always like the, the light that's revealed. And so you feel the strain and pinch and pressure. And, and so he's writing, he says, man, here's what you got to know. You are chosen in God from before the foundations of the world. He set his affections on you way back then. And then he brought you through the Spirit to Christ to obey the gospel. And because of that, you have a living hope. You have a promised guarantee that one day when Jesus returns or when you die and the resurrection takes place, you will be rewarded for your turmoil and your trouble and your faithfulness and your belief and your determination. All of that is in the beginning of that first chapter. He says, man, and you have it on the back end of the cross. The Old Testament prophets, they longed for that day. They investigated. They searched the scriptures. They wanted to understand it. But now we have received it, he says. And he says, therefore, because God has always loved you, and therefore, because you have an eternal destiny, therefore, he says, in the present, I want you to be anchored. And so he says, therefore, 
preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded sets your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I think this has tremendous value. I'm going to break this verse down into two components. Right? The first is where he says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Uh, he's saying this because um, what he knows, what we know, is when life is hard and pressured and you feel opposed and beat down, it is very easy to become apathetic. It is very easy to say, you know what, this is just going to be my lot in life. I just need to get through it. It's going to be a drag. I'm going to turn to other ways to just kind of uh, deal with the pain and the hardship, and I just hope that I can just get through the crap. That's a risk. I mean, if you've ever been in those places where life is discouraged, it's very hard to stay motivated. And, and, and Peter knows he knows these people feel like, again, they're outsiders. They feel like they're opposed. They feel like maybe it's never going to get better in this life. And he says, but that's no excuse to lose sight of what you're meant to do. That's why he's saying, you know what, you need to roll up your sleeves. You need to set your mind. Don't crawl into the bottom of a bottle and just drink it away. He says, on the contrary, prepare your minds for action, right? Be sober-minded in all you do. And then from it, he says, matter of fact, here's the way you really do that. You set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus at his revelation. See, I, I was thinking about this um, personal story. Uh, at this time last year, uh, I was immensely discouraged. I mean, immensely. I, I, I can tell you now. Uh, I was in one of probably three of the darker places of my life this time last year. And there was a number of reasons for that, right? Um, I, I, at that time, redemption had been around for just over two years. And so kind of starting a church takes a certain toll. And it came immediately on the heels of two years of craziness with the denomination. And so all of that had happened, and I was worn and fatigued and spent, and then immediately we're starting a church, and there's a lot of adrenaline there, and there's a rush, but there's a different type of fatigue that sets in, and all the challenge kind of moving the gear from boat A to boat B, and you know, it was just kind of challenging. During that same amount of time, my sweet wife, Ellen, uh, was diagnosed with lupus, and she was figuring out what does that mean? And kind of with every passing month, she was more worn out and ground down. And this is not her personality. My wife's a go-getter and very happy and just full of life and energy. And now her body is warring against her. And so I'm worn out. And she's worn out. And all of that craziness. And we, we have teenagers. And we have a great relationship with our teenagers. But no matter what teenager you raise, it's still a challenge. Right? It is. And all God's people said amen. Right? So... It's a challenge. And, and so all of that was happening. And, and from that, you know, I, I was just spiritually depleted um, and, and, and emotionally worn out, physically worn out. And then I had this idea, well, we want to build a bridge to our community. So I'm going to do a series where I ask questions online of our community because I want to say, hey, we'll answer your questions as best as we can. And that blew up. You know, and I remember I go into town going, this place hates my guts right now, right? And so all of that kind of swirled. And, and I remember in March and April, I, 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 I was just like, all I have to do is get to July. I just have to get to July because in July I'm taking a vacation, right? And so I found myself there in the spring setting my hope fully on July, if I can just claw my way there, it'll be okay. Because then I'll get through the month of July, and then I'd already gone to the elders and said, you know what, I, I, I'm really at a point. It's been a lot of years. I'm really worn out. Uh, guys, can I take a sabbatical in summer of 2015? Right? Because, I, I, again, if, if, maybe if I don't take one, one is going to be imposed on me. Right? Just, I'm cracking. Now, and, and, and so I thought, if I can just get to July, and then after July, if I can just get to the next July... I set my hopefully there and there, I'm going to be okay. Because July starts with a J, just like Jesus. Right? 
See, my plan was failed. My plan was massively failed because my restoration wasn't setting my hope in a break. It wasn't setting my hope on the following break. I, I needed to set it on Jesus, and I wasn't doing that. And so I, I made it to July, and I remember July 1, I'm just like, <laughs> salvation, right? Like, like that's, that's what I kind of thought. And, and then July, we went through the month, and my family and I, we, we went to Florida in July. That's, that's the opposite of Jesus. That's hell. That's, how should we take a break? Let's go to Florida in July. All right. Don't worry, we'll be around millions of people that want to see Mickey. All right, so um, that'll make it relaxing. So um, we, we did that, and we were driving f uh, from our condo to the airport at the end of the month uh, to come back here, and my wife looks at me and says, so are you ready to go back? And I said, no. I am not. Why? Because I set my hope fully on July I didn't set my hope fully on Jesus. I set my hope on a thing that is a little H hope, and it didn't have the work or the goal or the power to do what I most needed. Now, I, I, I share all of that with you to say I'm not there anymore. I'm, I'm not there anymore. And it was interesting. I remember we, we get to the airport, and it was kind of a crazy thing, and, and, and we get on the plane, and, and typically for me, when I take a break, when I'm gone for that length of time, it was a full month, and when I'm gone, I'm typically like, all right, I'm ready to get back in the saddle. I just wasn't. And, and so my family all just crashed, you know, as soon as they got on their, the plane and in their seats, they just fell asleep. And I'm there, and I grab my Bible, and honestly, I'm like, is this... What should I do going back? I mean, honestly, I just, I'm just like, I'm not full. I'm not complete. I don't feel healthy. And it was in that moment, in coach, all right, um, that like, like the Holy Spirit just, you know, like the jar of ointment over Jesus broke and ruptured over me. And just brought me back to stop going to lesser things. You keep going to lesser things. You keep thinking, this will satisfy. This will make you complete. This will solve your problems. This will make a great church. This will make a happy life. This will make you feel fulfilled. You keep going to lesser things. That was a long flight. And when we landed in Seattle, um, never have I been more grateful to be in a rainy place that is at least not 99 degrees and 99% humidity. And I'm like, oh, Florida is behind as hell is gone. And, um, and I wasn't any more energized, but I was clear. I was clear. And, and I knew where my, my, my thoughts had to be and my motivation needed to be. And I knew where my hope needed to fully be set. And, and since that time, it's been a progressive coming out of the darkness of that. Out of a failed hope of July. To where even now is, uh, I'm going into this summer, and, and, and it's really shifted from being a sabbatical to being much more of a ministry intensive. In other words, I'm not trying to get a break from ministry. I want to become stronger in ministry. I want to invest in understanding other people's ministries and what God is doing in those places and things like that. So it's a wonderful opportunity. But it, 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 it's now that because I'm not clawing my way to that point in time as my hope. Rather, it's what Peter says here. It's been a setting of my hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. It's a bigger perspective. I'm not looking at this summer or next summer. I'm looking at the eternal summer. Right? I'm, I'm looking toward that more and more. And I'm doing it incompletely. But I realize I'm, I'm doing it more and more. And it's healthier that way. You know, my, my wife and kids will tell you when Matt is in the right place mentally, when he has that kind of determination that is outside of himself and is on Christ, life is happier, home is happier, perspectives are better. And that's, that is true. And that's exactly what Peter's encouraging. He says you have to set your gaze beyond the distractions, beyond the debris, to Jesus. And I wonder if Peter, when he said this, had a very definitive mark in his mind. Like, I remember this one time where I got out of the boat. 
I remember this one time where I needed to set my gaze fully on Jesus, but I got out of the boat and I, I looked at the, the debris and the, the, the things that can distract and, and I looked at wind and waves and, and it illustrates how, how we fail in that. I mean, I, I know I do. It, it, it's hard to just set your vision fully on the future, a long-term future. And to set your hope fully on Jesus who embodies that future. I was watching a documentary not so long ago um, about the Blue Angels and when they fly these tight formations of multiple aircraft, right? And every one of the guys is doing one thing and one thing only. He's looking at the lead pilot. He's not looking at this guy. He's not looking at his instruments. He's not looking out the window like, hey, mom. He doesn't do that, right? He sets his gaze fully on one. And if I follow that, everything else is going gonna, is gonna to work right. Right? I can't control everything around me, but I set my gaze on the lead pilot. And everything else is tucked underneath that. And that's Peter's encouragement and wisdom. Right? What we need to start doing within our own lives, as he says here, is to set our hope fully on that grace. Right? You have to really do that. I, I realize sometimes we can, we can talk ourselves out of hope. Uh, and I think we need to start preaching hope to ourselves a little bit more, right? When you're having a down day, when you're having problems, when you feel opposed, when there's that person in your life where you go, oh, bless their heart, right? That person, right? Instead of thinking about the problem, instead of thinking about the irritation, uh, we need to preach hope to ourselves. We have a hope, we have a promise, we have a confidence, Right? Started in eternity past, it carries to eternity future. God so loved you, he intervened into your world in his love for you. That's your hope. That's my hope, right? That's what we want to do. This is what Peter seeks for his readers, right? To set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is for our daily living. We have to do this daily. Part of what helps drive that is verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Right? Your knee-jerk reactions, your temperaments, your uh, poor decisions and motivations as well as activities. He says, man, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now I want to be clear, when Peter says this, um, this is not written so that we just become a bunch of duty-bound Christians. We're not talking about some religious dogma apart from heart. That's not what God seeks. God says, be holy as I am holy because he wants you to have joy and happiness and peace and contentment. If anything, it's the way that you begin to really set your hope. You say, I really believe that's coming, and so I want to live every day in light of the day that is coming. That's why we want to be holy as God is holy. But he's setting this against our former way of life. He says, so there is godliness and there is worldliness. And, and, and don't make the investment into worldliness. Right? Make the investment into godliness. And in case we have any confusion on the definition, I, I read this this week from Kevin DeYoung. I thought it was good. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Right? Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. See, culture is always trying to inject us into a mold of worldliness, right? At many levels. I mean, you know, we're, we're naive if we don't believe that. I, now, I, I don't know if there's this grand concerted effort in the different enclaves of our culture. I don't think there's some group in the back room in Washington, D.C., or in Miami, or in L.A., or New York, or wherever, saying, how do we squeeze them into our mold? I, I don't believe that. I believe uh, all who don't know Jesus are blinded and under the sway of the wicked one, and they're really not our battleground, right? Satan, demons, sin, battleground, yes. The lost are the ones we want to rescue, right? So I, I don't think they have a, an aware concerted effort, but I think they have a blinded um, kind of pulling in that happens. And they want to squeeze us into that. 
right? Matter of fact, uh, Ellen was reading me a blog one day. This is about six weeks ago, I think. Uh, it was just as Fifty Shades of Grey was coming into theaters and we were driving to the movie, not that movie, but a movie. Um, uh, and, and, and so she was reading this to me in the car and it was some lady wrote a blog and she says, basically what's happened in the last 45 years is there's been three phases within our culture when it comes to worldliness. The first was to desensitize, right? Just to keep showing us images and thoughts and narratives that, that desensitize us to the weight of worldliness. Then the second phase was to normalize that, right? Which, whatever seems worldly, now seems normal and acceptable. And then if you don't embrace that, then you are marginalized, right? So it's desensitized, normalized, and then if you go, this is not good, you're, you're marginalized. You're, you're out of sync, you're square, you're religious, you're not in tune with the reality of where people are really at today, whatever it is. Um, that's just worldliness, and this is the risk. And so Peter's saying, man, don't get squeezed into that mold. Don't go back to your former way of life. Don't start thinking that that former way is a way that can be augmented with holiness, and it works well. He says, no, no, no. Uh, as God is holy, so you also be holy. Now, now some are going to say, oh, so you're trying to be holier than thou, are you? No, just holy as thou, not more. Um, because that's what he calls me to. And Peter here is quoting out of Leviticus. Now, I know some of you are going to be shocked and say, I thought it was just dead animals in Leviticus. No. Um, in Leviticus, there is encouragements repeatedly to holiness. In fact, in Leviticus 19, starting in verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For the Lord your God, I am holy. Right? Uh, what we're trying to be is like our God. We're not trying to be God, but we're trying to be like him, right? Because we admire what we see in him. We want what he offers. You go to the next chapter, chapter 20, starting in verse 7. It says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I, the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God. So keep my statutes and do them, because I am the Lord who sanctifies you. See, one of the things that is true is that um, grace uh, is this thing that is given not just to forgive my offenses, but to free me from the tyranny of going back to those offenses. Right? That's what grace does. Grace is not about, hey man, forgive me. Grace is about a restoration of my soul. Grace is about a completing that's designed to happen in my life by which the life of God has a residence in me and shapes me more into his image. That, that's what grace is designed to do. And God is saying this to his people, the Israelites here in Leviticus, because that's the real heart. That's the real heart. See, we, we shouldn't look at this and, and say, Here, here's what's great about Jesus. Uh, he saves me by his grace, and, and then I, I don't really live a changed life. That's, that's not what it looks like. It's, I, I'm saved by grace through Jesus so I can have a changed life. We shouldn't look and say, uh, how close to the line of sin can I get without somehow crossing over it? That's not grace. Grace says, I've empowered you and freed you in such a way that you don't want to play with the line of how close can you get toward sin. You want to play with the line of how close can you get toward God. That's where we press into. This is what Peter knows. This is what we know. See, the heart of holiness and the heart of grace and the heart of the good news of Jesus is that what we do with this book, for example, is we bend to it. We don't try to bend it to us. Which what you'll see among our evangelical friends or those who claim to be evangelical friends, there is a quest right now that says, how much can I bend it to fit what I need today? How much can I undermine it in grace? How much can I invalidate it because I'm saved. How much can I take advantage 
of God because God has rescued me. Right? That's not the heart of holiness. Now, I, I believe part of the nature of grace is that grace can be abused. I do believe that. I think grace is so unique it can be abused. But let's be clear, that's called abusing grace. Right? We can abuse it, but it's abuse. And see, we're, we're not called to abuse grace. We're called to be holy as God is holy. That's to be the quest. And, and here's why. Here's what he says. He says in verse 17, And if you call on him, this is First Peter, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in this life, your exile, conduct yourselves with fear. Why? Because you call on him, calling him father, the one who judges impartially. Now, um, God will judge all. He will. That's true. And for those who are believers, because their sin was judged in Christ and dealt with, man, the judgment that we have awaiting us is merely a judgment based on uh, reward for eternity. That's, that's how we'll be judged. For those who do not know Jesus, and there are some of you perhaps in this room that don't know Jesus, I say in absolute honesty and humility, you are estranged from God in your current state. Estranged from God. And that estrangement will be eternal. We can describe hell in a lot of different ways, but the bottom line is hell will be an estrangement from God and an estrangement from all that God has created. All. The people you know, the environment you understand, right? All estrangement. That, that That is a rich and powerful punishment. Right, so that that's the nature of hell, and that is the judgment that awaits those who do not know Jesus. But for those of us who do, Peter has something very particular to say here. He says, if God is an impartial judge, but you call him father, and I want you to listen to this closely. If God is an impartial judge, but you call him father as a Christian, uh, what he's saying is, it's no longer just an impartial relationship. It's familial. It's personal. It's intimate. And so if you're going to your father, who's a judge, and then you assume on him, well, because he's the judge, I can break the law all the time. My old man's a judge, and he's going to let me off. He says, that's not a healthy way to look at this. You don't want to do that. Because, again, if we're calling God Father, what we're saying is, I want to honor you. I want to respect you. I want to love you. I want to obey you. I want to follow you. I want to be more and more like you. God is a good father. Some of us did not grow up with good fathers, and so this is a little broken for us. We have to almost close the loop and say, all right, not the father that I've known, but the father that is promised to me, that's God. And if I call God Father, I don't want to say, because my old man's the judge, I can break the law. And he's a big softie, and he's going to let me off. Because here's the truth. Um, Yes, you and I, because God is Father, and he is judge, we are let off. We are. Right? So if I go out after work today, after church, and, and I do something really ridiculous and foolish, as a Christian saved by grace, am I let off? I am. Right? My sin is already dealt with. Every sin I will do in the future is already dealt with. All of my sins in the past are already dealt with. I am let off, but ready? Jesus was not. In other words, somebody pays. I don't pay to the judge who's my father because the judge who is my father said, you know what, I am going to give and send my son to deal with the problem. He will pay so that they do not. And this is Peter's point. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. 
right? This is where he anchors it. He anchors it in saying, you know what, you weren't ransomed for a million dollars, right? We're not dealing with ISIS that has a $10 million demand or a $50 million demand for a journalist somewhere. That's a substantial issue. That's a major, dark, sinister thing that they do. But we were ransomed ransomed with something much more precious, much more precious, right? So uh, with that, what Peter's getting at is saying, you know what, if we just kind of stroll through life, and we don't care about the nature of our sin. We don't care about the offenses that we bring. We just go, you know what? God is just the big, softy dad who forgives it. We don't realize the magnitude that Jesus carried every single one of those decisions we make. I mean, nothing is crueler than to consciously be aware of that and still choose to apply it to him anyway. Anyway. I know sometimes when my kids are sick, I wish I could just take it from them, right? I, I wish I could just bear that for them. But imagine if my kids were like, well, if you could bear that, I get sick all the time. It'd be so fun. You'd bear it all the time. I'd be like, that's not cool. You can have it back, um, right? But, but that's that same kind of thing. I, I, I think what we, have to, what we have to embrace what I pray that we embrace, what I pray that I embrace, is that there is some mystery that goes on. I, I don't understand it. I, 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 it's on a need-to-know basis, apparently. I don't need to know. But there is this mystery, and Paul stated, and we looked at it, I, I think, a couple of weeks ago in Galatians 2.20. He says, um, you know, I was crucified with Christ. He says, there was some mystery that happened that I was in Christ when he suffered, all of my sin, every single one of them was in Christ as he went to the cross. And so there's this retroactive thing. I'm not saying Jesus is perpetually crucified. What I'm saying is God in his all-knowingness, right, takes all of the things that Matt Boswell would ever do in the whole course of his life, and every one of those line item is then in Christ on the cross, right? This is the precious blood Right, that is shed for me. It's not general. It, it me. Right, and, and absorb that. Think about that. Jesus absorbs all of our offense. And it's not just that he suffers. It's not just that he dies. The weakness of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, is it only deals with the external. That's not the magnitude and weight of the cross. The magnitude of the sacrifice of Christ is that then God sees all of that sin in Christ for billions and billions of people spanning into the Old Testament, spanning into the New Testament era, all who are in Christ, and he crushes Christ. He takes all hell for all those people, for all time, and in a finite period of time, throttles his one and only precious, loved, adored son. Perfect, blameless, sinless, becomes sin and is crushed. Peter says, it is so precious. Do you realize the, the cost? Do you realize what the Father had to do to the Son? Do you realize what the Son had to receive from the Father? Do you realize that it was for a love of you in your rebellion that he did this? It is precious. It is precious. See, there are some of you in this room that, as I said earlier, you, you don't know Christ. You don't know Jesus. You, you, maybe you're, you're toying with faith or Christianity or, or something like that. It's why you're here. And, and I would say, this is what he's done. And if you sense the draw and the call and the inclination that says, I need this, you know what? Don't wait right now where you're at. All you have to do is say, Jesus, take me. I'm yours. I know what you've done for me. I know I've been going against you and you have given yourself for me. You just confess that and say, Jesus, I believe you're the way, man. You, you, that's, that is the core of salvation right there. That's the core of what it means to be rescued. And for those of us who know Jesus and have been changed by him, Peter's saying, man, live like people who realize the magnitude of what is offered. The magnitude of what has been done. We weren't bought with cash or gold or an exchange of property. But God himself said, I will come. I will be judged, and I will judge. 
Right? That is the power of the cross. And Peter knows that Peter's been touched by it. Peter's been forgiven of this. Peter's the guy that denied, not once, not twice, three times. Peter's the guy that made mistakes after he was saved. And so he knows the beauty of this. And so he says, realize the advantage that you have, the advantage that I have, because of the power of Christ to overcome. We can overcome because he is the overcomer. He says, so live in that. It was this Jesus in verse 20 who was foreknown before the foundations of the world. Again, we already have learned about this word. It's that God foreloved. There was a forintimacy with Christ as there is a forintimacy with us. It says he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God becomes man, grows up, lives, suffers, and dies for us. What's great is he didn't stay dead. He did it for your sake, who through him you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, Peter just drives it all right back to, because this has happened, because you've been changed, because you are called to these things, man, you have faith for today, and you have hope for tomorrow. He says, that's how you want to live. Now, one of the ways this is really tested, and I will tell you personally, it is really tested in this way, is in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Oh! Right? It's like, right when you're starting to think, yeah, this is about me, this is about my own spirituality, man, this is about me and God, yes, I'm going to live for him, I'm going to be holy, I'm going to do it right, I'm going to overcome because he's overcome, I'm going to bask in what that is, I'm not going to sin, he goes, awesome, you want to find out? Uh, go love people. Because sometimes it is not easy to love people, amen? Right? Matter of fact, the biggest challenge you will find in your life is loving the people around you. It's just matter-of-factly true. You go, well, I don't have a problem loving the people around me. Ask your spouse. If you are 100% spot on, on point, always just obviously the loving person, right? And, and there's going to be moments where you're not. There's going to be moments where they're not. And your kids are going to look at you and say, ah, not always. You're going to look at your kids and go, yeah, bingo, right? Um, and ditto, right? And, and, and so that's it's going to be... The reality. But the command is clear. Love. That's the command. Earnest. Earnest love. That's the attitude. And it says from a pure heart. That's, that's the empowerment. Right? It's the empowerment. And, and, and this is all really critical. I mean, I look at this and I go, it's critical and, and here's why. Um, I, I mean this truly and, and generally. Um, but I think the bottom line is, what, what Peter would be saying to us, is if we as a church, I'm going to just make it redemption, if we as a church can't manage to love one another while we agree, in other words, we agree on the Bible, we agree on Jesus, we agree on the gospel, we agree on eternity, we agree on our morality, we agree on a great many things that we would say are the most important things. So what he's saying is, if you all who agree can't manage to love one another, then how on earth are you going to love people out there who reject what you agree on? Right? How are you going to do that? Because that's a whole lot more difficult out there right? It's a whole lot more difficult. Now, some of us will say, no, no, it's not hard to love unbelievers. In fact, I get along with unbelievers better than I get along with believers. Some people will say that. And I'll say there's a great reason. because you're not bringing up your faith that much to them. Honestly, you're not bringing up your faith that much. That's why it works so well. You start to bring that up. You start to show the solidarity you have in here with people out there. And pretty soon you're going to realize one or two things. They're either attracted or they're repulsed. Right? And, and, and that's just kind of a, a simple reality. And, and so what we need to fight for, even though it's hard, 
is to sincerely love one another. Yeah, I know churches are diverse and people are all different and different shapes, colors, sizes, styles, tastes, hobbies, backgrounds, family, you know, situations in life, whatever it is. We're going to have singles and marrieds and divorced and divorced remarried and marriages that are on the rocks and marriages that are really healthy and we're going to have teenagers that are making great decisions and teenagers that are making poor decisions and all that's going to be true to the church and we're still called to love. Jesus says in John 13, he says, a new command I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we love one another, it declares that the gospel is powerful enough to change us and to move us beyond our own self-interested motivations. That's how powerful the gospel is. The gospel is so powerful, I can love the people around me selflessly. Not because they're easy, not because we always agree on everything, but we agree on the big things, and that's enough to love. Right? That's what Peter encourages and inspires. Now, this happens not just because we're smart or focused, right? but because he says in verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This is where I go back to there's some things we really care about as a church. We care about Jesus and him being worshipped. And we care about Jesus in his book being embraced. And we do so because the Bible is more than just black and white and a little bit of red, if that's your version. Um, it's more than that. It's more than just leather or an app. It's more than that. It's more than just wisdom or narrative or history or apocalypse. It's more than that. In fact, when you start looking at the way the Bible communicates itself, it's pretty impressive. I'm going to have a list of verses that are going to roll through really quick. But you see, first of all, that the word is eternal and it's guaranteed. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. When people are saying, what is truth? Right? Here's what's truth. What God has provided in his word. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. It's eternal and guaranteed. More than that, it's dynamic. And it's the very expression of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God. In the same way that God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2, God brings life and breathes into our lives his word. It's powerful. Hebrews 4 says it's enriching and alive. For, all, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. It is the discerner and the discerner of thoughts and intentions of the heart. It can dig really deep and expose what's really going on inside of us. What else we see from Scripture is that it is a union of spirit and spirit in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Now we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart these in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths with those who are spiritual. There is a union that happens where the Holy Spirit who breathed out the scriptures to the writers is the same spirit that works in you. So when you read what he wrote, it resonates. And it shapes and it moves and it's a dynamic. This is why in Acts 19.20, we see that the word was unstoppable and world-changing. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. I bring up all of those verses and there are a ton more. I bring it all up because this is what Peter closes with. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Right? The same word that turned the world upside down, the same word that rushed through the book of Acts, the same word of God that has shaped our world, the same word of God that stepped into your life when you weren't looking and you weren't seeking and you didn't want, that same word of God still works in you. And if we pick it up and we invest into it and we want it to be absorbed into our life, it shapes our person by his grace. Amen? And that's what we have to believe. And I know I'm getting very impassioned this morning, and I didn't even have any Adderall or caffeine, all right? So, um, 
But I'm telling you what, I mean, I am so utterly convinced of this truth. When I am distant from that book, I am distant from what it calls me to. And when I cleave to that book, and I see it as more than a book, I see it as God's incarnate, breathing, living thing in me, man, there is change. There is change. And so I can't share it enough to know it, to read it, to memorize it, to live it. To say, Jesus, I can't do this apart from you, so do it in me. That's what we need to do. More than any time I can think of in my entire adult life, I am convinced that we as God's people are not going to be able to coast by apart from this. The pressure will grow. The desire to bend it to our wishes will grow. And we'll be forced to make decisions that says, uh, yeah, let's just bend it so I can fit in. Or it's going to be, um, I need to bend to it. But as I bend to it, there is reward for me. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for passion. I thank you for the fact that your word is not stagnant it's not just data it doesn't rest on an ancient dead page and I pray that we would believe that we wouldn't just say it I pray that we would believe it I I pray that we take it for a test run that we start testing what it says about loving as opposed to resenting about giving as opposed to hoarding about uh, thinking on the problems and rather that we would rather put our hope and faith in your solutions. I pray that we would not merely stand up for it in the public forum, but we would live by it in our private lives. I ask that we would be champions that are practitioners, not just pundits. And so I ask that you would do a mighty thing, that you would bring a very powerful living dynamic in us holy spirit as you are in us and you are in your word i pray the union of those two would be brought tight and jesus i thank you that you are the word and you've given us the word and i pray that that union would be tight and father i thank you that you've called us to holiness because you're holy i pray that we would be those things for your fame and glory in your awesome name amen